that there are some similarities in why people went this way with what happened in Germany in the interwar period. Uh, you know, people don't vote for people this far out if they are really bitterly disenchanted and angry with what's going on. And to me, the most worrisome thing about the US is such a huge proportion of the population, I think to some degree it's all stronger left, are really unhappy with what's going on. That's frightening in what most of us objectively would say is, despite obviously gigantic problems, a fantastically successful society. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been the opportunity to speak to a huge range of extraordinary people from all around the world. In this series, I have invited one of them, namely Kevin Coldine, to host a series of in-depth conversations to help uncover and explain new ideas to make you a better investor. In the series, Kevin will be speaking to authors of new books and research papers to better understand the global economy and the dynamics that shape it so that we can all successfully navigate the challenges within it. And with that, please welcome Kevin Coldiron. All right. Uh, thanks, Niels. Welcome, everyone. Um, our guest today is Martin Wolf, whose work um, I've been reading my entire career, and I think many of you will be in a similar position. He is the chief economics commentator at the Financial Times and has been called the world's preeminent financial journalist. Um, as you might imagine, he's received a very long list of awards and honors, including uh, Commander of the British Empire for Services to Financial Journalism and the Gerald Loeb um, Lifetime Achievement Award for Business Journalism. He's here today to talk about his new book called The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism, where he's warning us that the way of life we're used to in the West, particularly this marriage between democracy and capitalism, is at risk. And the risk is not from the outside, it's from the inside. And when someone, you know, who, who has observed the world so keenly for so long has this view, it's important for all of us to understand. And that's why um, we're fortunate to have him here today. Uh, so, Martin, um, it's, a, uh, it's a pleasure. It's an honor to have you on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, I'm looking forward to the discussion. Um, you say at the beginning of the book uh, that many people who read your work complain you're a pessimist and that uh, that's served you well in life because it's meant that most surprises have been uh, positive. Um, but you, you also make a, you know, a, a much deeper personal point that, you know, your, your existence uh, in the world is due to the decision of two pessimistic men, your father and, and your grandfather. And I was wondering if you could maybe just tell us a little bit about that history and how it motivated you to write this book at this particular point in time. Yes, I'd be very happy to do so. Um, so my family, uh, my mother and my father were both from continental Europe. Uh, they were born in the early part of the 20th century. And my father lived most of his life before he came to England in Austria though he was actually born in what later became Poland. When he was born, it was actually still part of the Austrian Empire. And my mother was born in Holland. So in 1937, my father, who was then 27, uh, was a very successful writer for the um, German-speaking stage, decided that living in Vienna and in Austria was simply too dangerous, uh, that he didn't know what happened, was going to happen, but he was very 
frightened. So he left um, Vienna for England, and that's why he was here um, during the Second World War. My uh, mother lived with her parents in a coastal village in Holland where her father, my grandfather, uh, was a self-made fish merchant. He'd grown up in poverty in Amsterdam and had succeeded in business. And when uh, the Germans had already crossed the frontier in May 1940, he uh, got hold of a trawler. We never quite sure where the he hijacked it, as some say, or persuaded the captain or bribed the captain, I don't know. He got hold of a trawler and he invited all his family. He, he was one of eight, so his brothers and sisters had many children. Um, it's a large family, about 30 people in all, I understand. And he invited them all to join him on the trip to England as the Germans were pouring into Holland. But they all decided that that was unnecessary. They all stayed and he and his family got out and all of his family really without exception, was killed in the Holocaust. And my parents met in uh, uh, in England at a party. Uh, uh, and uh, as I also note, I think it's inconceivable that I, they would ever have met in any other world than the world created by Hitler. And why this is relevant for me, obviously, uh, there are two aspects. The, the fact that such catastrophes can happen, uh, they're perfectly possible events. The world is not safe and political order is not safe it has always been obvious to me. And if it gets sufficiently disordered, unspeakable tragedies that people never imagined could happen, might happen. So that's just part of my makeup, this sense of the fragility of institutions. Now, I'm not trying to compare where we are now with the 30s. There are many, many differences, mostly po highly positive ones. Two things are clearly better for a whole host of reasons. But some of the arguments and ideas that were so current in Europe in the interwar years, particularly this time on the right, the the old left has almost completely disappeared. The communist left has pretty well disappeared. But on the right, we are seeing a rebirth of authoritarianism, autocracy, um, nationalism, ethnic hatreds, and so forth, which uh, are very obvious. And uh, the book is partly written significantly written in response to the what I see as the dangers of those trends. You, uh, thank, thanks for that. And, uh, you know, the book, you entitled the book, The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism. And you say early on that the, the potential for conflict between those two things is self, self-evident. And I, I must say that, you know, personally, you know, it took me a quite a while to see this. And I don't mean quite a while reading your book. I mean, quite a while in my own life to see this, because I guess maybe naively, I kind of always sort of thought, well, th those two things are kind of just naturally go together. And you, you mean, you say, you describe the two systems as complementary opposites. Um, so I, I was wondering if perhaps we could just start with the complementary bit and then move to the opposites. I mean, what, what what are the aspects of democracy and capitalism that that do go together so well? I think your attitude, by the way, very widely shared, uh, particularly in Western countries, uh, mostly because they've been democratic and capitalist um, since anybody who is alive pretty well can remember, which isn't actually a very long time. It is worth remembering, the oldest of us might be 100. So that goes back to 1923. And they would have been 20 at the time of the war. So they probably wouldn't have a living experience of authoritarian regimes. That's, of course, not true for people who live in Central and Eastern Europe. So it's not very far from us. But they weren't living in capitalist countries either. Uh, it is, however, worth remembering that capitalism preceded democracy. And as in 1800, which was when capitalism was really beginning to get going, uh, particularly in Britain and, of course, in America and a few other places, Holland and so forth, there were absolutely no democracies anywhere. Nothing we would regard as a democracy existed. These regimes were all autocratic, authoritarian, or class aristocratic or plutocratic regimes. That's basically the norm. Now, my argument here is capitalism itself was a revolutionary set of ideas because it said 
uh, your status in the world is not dependent on who your parents were. Your, your inherited class position doesn't determine who you are. Anybody, male or female, uh, in, a, in a capitalist country with the rule of law is entitled to start up a business for themselves. Uh, if they're successful, they can make a lot of money. Uh, if they make a really large amount of money, they can become aristocrats for that sort of notional. Uh, the Rothschild's famous story in the late 18th century to become the richest people in continental Europe in a few decades is the perfect example of what capitalism could deliver. But there were many, many other examples of such entrepreneurs. And the basic idea of capitalism is, of course, no ascribed status, the rule of law, individual et effort and enterprise, and gaining the rewards of success and employing people in competitive markets, so not exploiting them beyond the fact that you have more resources than they. So that's the basic idea. Now, once you've got this mechanism in process, in play, this economic me mechanism, I think it has ideological and practical consequences. To start with the practical consequences, it completely transformed society. It made completely different sorts of societies that any that have existed before. And among the most important things that happened is mass urbanization brought vast numbers of people together. You created a mass industrial labor forces, which were organizable and could be organized in trades unions and similar organizations. Uh, you, re you generated rising living standards so people could start thinking about more than daily survival. You generated a ever-rising demand for education. Capitalists wanted educated and skilled working forces, labor forces. They started uh, asking, actually agreeing that the public should be educated. There should be universal education. That came in most capitalist societies in the 19th century. And as a result, he created a society that wanted a place in society because they were educated, increasingly prosperous, often middle class, upper working class people, and they wanted a voice. And so in many, many countries, though not all, they started being given a voice um, in Britain, in America. Um, I believe that the re reversal and undoing of slavery was partly a consequence of this. It became an untenable system in this sort of free market society. And so the demand for democracy became very great. It extended. Uh, there was this push. But there was also a, a value element in it. Because if capitalism says everybody, in some sense, has an equal claim on uh, the right to succeed, it's, it basically says individuals are valuable. And if individuals are valuable, they, 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 then it becomes quite difficult to argue they should have no say in public life just because they're poor. Property um, limits on uh, the franchise were quite common, but they became increasingly untenable and arbitrary. And by the early 20th century, particularly with uh, universal conscription in many countries, it became impossible to sustain. So we got in a universal suffrage democracy. So those are the ways in which I think both historically and ideologically, the two systems turned out to be complementary. Yeah, it's um, it, it's interesting listening to you talk. There's a certain, and I'm just going to say, sense of inevitability. But certainly, those are those are quite powerful forces that you describe. And then we'll talk about China later on. But um, obviously, they're trying to manage a system where you have a have a market economy, which will unleash all the forces that you just described in terms of uh, democracy. But not having democracy. So is that actually correct. One of the most fascinating phenomena. In the late 19th century, the country that was different, very different, which resisted most strongly these democratizing forces and quite consciously was Germany. And the German Empire remained authoritarian politically. And uh, Bismarck, the great founder, designed it to do so. But of course, it led to catastrophe. Well, let's talk about the you know, the, the opposite sides with where democracy and capitalism have a, have a conflict an uneasy marriage. I think you say at one point, um, tell us about that. Well, in some way it's interesting. I was thought about this after I wrote this, the founding fathers 
of the America, the US, were the United States, were very aware of the danger that their society might become democratic. They weren't very keen on democracy. You all remember back in the, the late 18th century. They rather looked down on the people. And uh, so they created a system that was designed to limit it. Um, and some of that is, I think, valuable. And some of it is more problematic. I won't go into that. But the point is, even in the United States, where clearly the founding fathers uh, were worried about it, the pressures became over overwhelming. Now, what this suggests, which is, I think, an important point, is, and history strongly supports this, that very broadly speaking, there are two ways that this marriage can erode. One is that the power of the, better word, the, pluto the plutocracy, people who are much richer than other people, completely dominates public life. Basically, society is dominated by the power, political society is dominated by the power of money, or at least is very powerful. And it feels increasingly resentful of the, to my mind, completely inevitable demands of the people in general for some form of welfare states. And there can be many different versions of that, but some form of universal wealth, and particularly when the society gets very rich. And that conflict in America, of course, was really played out between the beginning of the, uh, the 20th century and the New Deal. And uh, in the end, uh, if you like, the democratic element in that story uh, won and overwhelmed the plutocratic element. At least that's how I would see it. But of course, there's been a this doesn't necessarily last forever. And there can be a huge backlash. And I think there is one going on. Now, the other element in the story is that uh, the masses of the people, for one reason or another, it can be different elements in them, find the democratic system is not generating the sort of rule they want. And they may p resent particularly some elements in the elite, different elements in the elite as they see it. And they look for an autocratic demagogue, a populist demagogue, to protect them against these elites. And the, what comes out of that, and it could be actually of the left or the right, is an autocrat. Uh, and the, uh, an autocrat who plays on the fear the, the masses, the majority, have for the plutocratic elite or the intellectual elite. It could be either. And uh, once that happens you go into autocracy. So you can, one danger is a plutocratic oligarchy and the other danger is an autocracy. Now, we've also seen in the past, but not in prosperous capitalist societies, so I don't really discuss in this book, left-wing autocracies of the communist variety. But for now, for a long time, they cease to be very relevant. So I've ignored them. It's the other two possibilities that are the most plausible ones. And in the United States, I think very clearly, we're seeing an amalgam of the plutocratic with the autocratic forces. And at the moment, we simply don't know which is going to win. You spend a lot of time talking about the United States and the risks to democracy in the United States. Do you see those same types of risks, you know, in the UK and continental Europe? Yes, absolutely. I mean, actually, the places where these risks are most developed are developing countries emerging and developing countries, and I give lots of examples. A critique of my book, which I think is perfectly reasonable, is that I'm mostly interested in the fate of high-income countries, um, and that's because these have been democratic for a long time, so most people thought they were consolidated democracies, just a technical term, and because these are the countries that I know and have lived in. But obviously, if you look at the fragile democracies of the emerging developing world, you see one after another where an autocrat is taking over. And well, right at the moment in Sudan, we've got a classic military coup going on. The normal way now is for an elected leader to use the power given to him as an elected leader to subvert the democratic process. And you're seeing that in Turkey. You saw it, of course, in Russia. You've seen it in, in Hungary. Um, some would argue you're seeing it in Poland, you're, you're seeing it, I believe, in India. 
Uh, it didn't quite happen in Brazil, but it might yet do so from the left or the right. It's clearly happening in Mexico. There's an endless slew of that sort of leader um, emerging out of democracy to create autocracy. Now, if you look at the consolidated democracies, there are some of the more obvious cases where there's a real risk. It would be France, where many people expect Marine Le Pen, who's uh, a neo-fascist, there's no doubt that's who, where, who she is, where she comes from, to be elected as the next president of France. France is a country with a very strong pres executive presidency. So she could pretty well do what she wants. It's not clear how that would play out. The current prime minister of Italy is a fascist, member of fascist party. So far, she's been very constrained, but there's a lot of fiercely fascist and uh, uh, populist rhetoric coming from her. We don't know how that's going to play out. There are large, very right-wing parties, I mean, really right-wing parties in Spain, Sweden, even Finland, and uh, and even Germany. So they are significant, but um, their shares are sort of in 20, 25% range or smaller, so not yet at the point of being able to take power, but we don't know what will happen if things get very bad. Uh, in Britain, there's a very strong right-wing conservative element in the Conservative Party was behind Brexit, but I would say the authoritarian element is still relatively weak, and we don't have an autocratic leader in the offing now, um, thank heaven. So I would say in the European countries, there's very clear fragility, but not mortally uh, so. And the, I focus on the US for two reasons. First of all, it's incomparably the most important democracy in the world. I think we can safely say, or at least I would say, that democracy would probably not have survived the 20th century without the United States, since essentially it defeated the two great rivals, fascism and communism. And, uh, and I would also say the anti-democratic elements in politics in America are particularly well-developed, and notably after the Stop the Steal movement which I regard as a coup attempt uh, in the US. Um, and because of its huge importance and because of that history, I think it's, it's crucial. If the US were to, to fall to an, autocrat an autocratic regime, a regime that no longer allowed ordinary democratic processes to work, uh, then I think the politics of democracy in the world would probably be fatally injured. You'd only really end up with Europe and maybe Japan and a couple of other countries. It's just not enough. Already today, it's important to note that more than half the world population lives in countries that are outright autocracies or moving in that direction. Did your view on the U.S. change at all after the midterm elections in 2022? I mean, I think a lot of us were surprised at um you know how well the the democrats did and also how well not how well but the kind of response of some of the republicans saying hey let's move on from trump we're tired of losing let's it's now let's kind of refocus um did that change your view at all or is that just a, a kind of a blip well the obvious answer is i think so i don't count myself as any real expert on this but one midterm is only a blip uh, uh, yeah, that, that's obvious American, anybody who follows American politics at all. And I followed it passionately as most British people will be. And I lived in the country for 10 years and during Watergate as it happened. So that was quite an education, very uh, favorable one, by the way, I was immensely impressed by Congress at that time. And uh, I might mention this because the contrast between the impeachment hearings in the house in uh, on Watergate, when the Republicans voted with the Democrats that be, uh, that Nixon should be impeached for obviously impeachable offenses, there's no doubt about that. Uh, the contrast between their behavior at that time, I remember Barbara Conable, I think, was the head of the minority in in, in the House Judiciary Committee. I mean, he impressed me immensely. I got to know him later. I admired him greatly. And the contrast between that and what happened with a very few distinguished exceptions, uh, like Liz Cheney, uh, more recently, is very, very disturbing. And that is important. I mean, I think there is something big as change. 
But I think my answer to this is I thought the midterms were very interesting and encouraging. It shows that maybe the Republicans have overreached, or the, the people I uh, rightly or wrongly regard as the crazies have overreached. But I'm very far from completely encouraged because uh, far I, this is based on reading. I've not been in the US for a while, not for a few months, but it appears that Trump is still the favored candidate to be the next president of the United States. If it's not him, it's Ron DeSantis, who strikes me as uh, pretty horrifying from my point of view. The, the Republicans still control the House, and they are truly scary. It's almost unbelievable to say this for somebody like me, but we don't know whether the U.S. will, will or will not default in a couple of months. That's just inconceivable. I mean, inconceivable to me. Anybody who knows anything about economic history, I mean, that's just inconceivable. Uh, we know that, and I read a lot about it, there are, there are ongoing attempts to subvert the election process in different ways in the states uh, with ideas going to the Supreme Court, which would apparently allow uh, the legislature to overturn the outcome of an election in states. Some of this looks, with the gerrymandering, very similar to the historic pattern of politics in the Deep South uh, before civil rights. And if Trump or somebody like Trump were to be elected, my understanding is that there is a pretty well-developed program now, unlike in 2016, which would allow them to use their control over the major departments, Department of Justice, uh, the security agencies, the Defense Department, the Inland Revenue, whose power is often underappreciated, to assault their enemies. So I think that, that the midterms, it's a lengthy answer, was very encouraging. But we're, you're just at the beginning of a long war, not at the end of it. Yeah, I think that that's, uh, that's right. And some of us, you know, we, we kind of, I think we, it was a, a welcome respite, but then, you know, we've kind of returned to return to normal a little bit. And I, I you know, I want to get on to some of your recommendations for reforming democracy and reforming capitalism, but, um, you know, can that happen in a country like the U S when one party seems to be so, as you say, anti-democratic, they're not really committed to the democratic party. Can we proceed with reforms that will make a difference? Um, you know, although I should, should say that we have to be careful in overestimating the support for that. I mean, Trump lost the first election by 3 million votes and the second election by 7 million votes. And, you know, the Republican party has gained power despite representing a minority of the country. So I, I think that there would be a large constituency in favor a lot of a lot of the reforms you, um, you advocate on, on the other hand, you know, do you need more than that? Do you need both parties committed to reform to, to make progress? Well, obviously, um, your founders in their wisdom, and they were very remarkable people, though I don't think their constitutions work quite as well as they might have hoped. Or, but that's an interesting question. I think we wouldn't, even people like that wouldn't design this sort of constitution now 240 years later. Um, so, Roughly, you, you will give me the exact number of years. But the, they designed it to make changing the Constitution and just making big policy changes very, very difficult. And I understand that. I understand the reasoning behind that. So the result is that in most times, big changes from the center in America have been impossible. And the exceptions have been rare. Uh, obviously, one crucial set of exceptions came after the Civil War. It took your worst war to end slavery. Reality, as you know very well, lost more people, absolutely, never mind, in relationship to the population in the Civil War than I think in all your other wars together. That's right. So that was a hell of a thing to go through. And the, the Great Depression, obviously had a devastating effect on your politics. 
and led to the election of an administration with overwhelming support in Congress, which carried through changes which I would have thought would be inconceivable without the complete shattering of the economy. So that's certainly not something I would r recommend. I think uh, the war also itself created demands for changes which were very, very important. Uh, and the sort of things I would now be recommending if they hadn't been like the GI Act and so forth. So the country will has shown itself able to respond to really enormous challenges, but they have been difficult. Most of the time, not much change happens. And all of my friends who work on this area tell me that the constitution has become more or less unamendable, uh, which wasn't the case originally. So the combination of it's very difficult anyway, and it's got even more difficult, and the rise of an enormously powerful conservative movement, which goes back clearly to the 50s and 60s, it's not new, plus the effect of civil rights in shifting the South into the Republican camp, has created an immensely powerful, I think, reactionary movement. I don't think this is conservative in any way I would understand it. I'm very sympathetic to Edmund Burke, as you probably know if you read my book, but I don't think Edmund Burke would feel very attracted by this form of conservatism, which I think is a reaction, populist reaction. And so in that context, I don't know how big changes can be brought about. I would say, uh, and I have written this, that this administration, though I don't agree with all it's done, has been braver and more successful in, in making changes uh, of the kind that I think were necessary, broadly speaking, than I expected, and I give them a lot of credit for it, um, because I would have to say, from this, from my point of view, partly exposed in all truth, Clinton and Obama, both of whom I regard as fantastically talented men, didn't achieve what I would have hoped that they would achieve in in dealing with the obvious problems that were growing in the U.S. So I'm a little more optimistic in all than I would have been a couple of years ago. But it does seem to me very fragile, and and a sizable part of the Republican movement as it is now is, as I said, I mean they're they're reactionaries, and uh, and some of them are just incomprehensibly crazy to me. I just can't understand. I it really is a lack of moral imagination. I cannot understand how any elected official of a great republic can seriously contemplate using national bankruptcy default as a tool for achieving changes uh, which are themselves highly undesirable and for which she's, they have absolutely no mandate. <laughs> There's a lot of people who share, <laughs> share that. Um, and, but, you know, to be, to be fair, I do, I do think there is a large but kind of disappointingly silent group of Republicans who, you know, kind of just want to get back to a kind of a conservative agenda, but well-run agenda, but, uh, their base isn't with them. And, and, and so if the base of your party, which I suppose you will tell me, but probably a quarter of the electorate, but, but obviously the largest single, perhaps less the largest single chunk in the Republican party now doesn't want to go there, then you're, you're trapped. You're, you're trapped by your, your supporters and what they want. And what in does interest me, and I don't think I fully got that in this book, but I haven't read anything that does, is why as many as one in four, maybe one in five of Americans is so unhappy with the way they live in the richest country in the world, despite all its problems, that they are prepared essentially to vote for people who are willing to bring the whole Tower of Babel down on top of their heads. I mean, it's just sort of incomprehensible to me. But that's the reality. And as long as such a huge proportion of the people who vote for and actively engage in Republican politics feel that way, I don't see how they can go back to some other form of Republicanism. It's it's not what their their supporters want them to do. Trump's genius was to realize, I think genuine genius was to realize before anyone else did, that so many people were vote, who voted Republican were looking for that sort of leadership. They didn't want the Jet Bush. They didn't want a Romney. They wanted him or someone like him. And that was a revelation. That was the core revelation. Trump isn't the issue to me. The people who vote for Trump are the issue. 
Yeah, it, it, part of me uh, thinks that the appeal, um, it, it, like you said, wasn't so much um, what Trump wanted to do because it was clear. It's not clear what he wanted to do, but um, that he was just, you know, happy to say exactly what he wanted at all times. Um, and I think a lot of people don't don't feel that um, freedom in their they lives. Felt, they felt what I think I didn't get fully, and maybe that I underestimated this is. There's clearly a very, very powerful element. What I stress is that a lot of these people haven't been doing terribly well and they feel that's unjust because they're hardworking, decent people. Why aren't we doing better? Um, but I think they also feel passionately disrespected, uh, embittered in the famous uh, adjective that Obama used, and deplorable, even worse, the famous adjective that Clinton used. Well, if people call you embittered or deplorable for the choices you made, you're likely to get very, very angry. And and I let me be clear, I'm not trying to make this as a direct comparison. I'm not at all, but I do point out that there are some similarities in why people went this way with what happened in Germany in the interwar period. Uh, you know, people don't vote for people this far out if they aren't really bitterly disenchanted and angry with what's going on. And to me, the most worrisome thing about the US is such a huge proportion of the population, I think to some degree it's all stronger left, are really unhappy with what's going on. That's frightening in what most of us objectively would say is, despite obviously gigantic problems, a fantastically successful society. You know, in, in your kind of the motivating philosophy of your recommendations is well, there's two things really going on there. The, the one, what you're saying in terms of reforms, the goal should be to kind of remove harm as opposed to kind of promote happiness. So almost like um, getting better at providing the, the, fundamental social insurance role of the government. And then the the second thing is you're saying we shouldn't really aim for revolution, it's reform, what you call piecemeal social engineering, doing things small bits. Is that philosophy motivated by the idea that we, you know, in the US or other democracies we can't really do big things right now and that it's if we're going to succeed we have to do it kind of in small steps experiment? I think there are two elements of this, one of which people might violently disagree with and some one which I think makes sense. I want to have a program that could become a governing program and might make enough of a difference to shift enough people at the margin to give you stable majorities for more normal forms of democratic politics, which focused on uh, looking after the people and giving them a decent life, but don't pretend to have the solution for all human problems, because I think politics like that will always disappoint and embitter. In the case of the US, in a way, it's easier to recommend this than elsewhere, because the um, sort of fairly basic parts of the social insurance network either don't exist or need such radical and obvious change. Uh, I mean, for example, the US has now very considerably the lowest life expectancy in the developed world. And, uh, well, we know largely what causes that. Part of it is the lack of universal health insurance. Part of it is the absence of effective childcare. Part of it is really very, very considerable inequality. And these are, I think, fixable problems. And I think it would improve people's welfare greatly if they were fixed. The deaths of despair and the opiate crisis, which is a gigantic thing to any outsider, let alone mass incarceration, all are reflections of quite serious social harms, which other countries don't suffer from. And so I think they are fixable and they would involve some more spending. But as I point out in my book, the U.S. plutocratic elite is markedly undertaxed, and it can be taxed more. And they don't pay, particularly at the very top of the distribution, 
um, the tax avoidance and evasion is staggering. So that can be fixed. And I think, again, that is the direction in which this administration is trying to go. And I, and I applaud them for trying to do this. I think we can start thinking about changes in the way corporations are run and managed. Who has a say? I mean, I'm really rather keen on having workers uh, have votes in corporate boards. I see no reason why that shouldn't happen. The Germans do that. I can't remember whether I discussed this in detail. There are quite a lot of things that I would like to change. But the total transformation of capitalism as a system seems to me impossible and pr probably undesirable. I am very keen on radical changes to deal with the climate problem. And I think I've always been in favor of heavy carbon taxes, all of which are returned to the public. So it's not a net tax, it's just a change in relative prices. That seems an obvious thing to do, but even that has been far too radical to do. Uh, and that gets to the second point, uh, which is these are the sort of things I want to do because I think they're right. But it is true that the way I see politics in our countries, all our countries now, nobody is discussing really radical change, anybody with a real electoral presence. So... It's, it's between the, the challenges between reaction, real reaction of the type I was, we were discussing earlier, and some form of progressive change. Well, in that choice, I clearly go for the latter because you can't do things if you don't have power. You have to win power. And it's pretty clear that, that in all our Western countries, the sorts of people who can come in who will make useful changes are moderates. I mean, that's seems to me clear. Uh, the Democrats, right it or wrongly, and the people, uh, mostly I think from the African-American caucus who decided that Biden should be their candidate, were from an electoral point of view, I think clearly right. So uh, you have to go with what's going to win. Uh, and even if you are much more radically inclined than I am, um, I actually had a debate here in Britain very recently with Bernie Sanders, who I like and respect. And we, we agreed on quite a few things, but he's not going to win presidency. What's the point? You've got to have somebody who is going to win. And my program, I think, is the sort of program people might want to win on or might be able to win on because they might persuade people that they're, they're, it, it's possible. And the other point about it, and this is much more controversial in the U.S. case, and I think of this in the British case too, I do think a lot of what I call, we've got used to calling the identity politics of the left, even if I agree with it, politics that focuses on gender issues and things of this kind, is just, is not a winning ticket. And you have to make much wider coalitions. Uh, now, abortion's a completely different issue. I mean, that's sort of obvious. You have to fight that because it's intolerable. But the, uh, so I think it has to be, uh, about focusing on social ills and getting rid of social ills. And in the U.S., more than most cases, I can go through a long list, to me as an outsider, there are more obvious social ills and more unnecessary social ills because the resources to deal with them are so obviously present. Yeah, you, um, it, as you were talking about the various things that could be solved, there was a, was a danger of you becoming a little bit optimistic there. I sensed it. Um, but, you know, I... I, well, I you are... You, I can't easily be criticized, I think, but I can be, of course, of being far too optimistic and idealistic and having no real vision for the future at the same time. I was very aware writing this that I had to be at the limits of the plausible, but not, I thought, in fantasy land. And turning the United States into a social democratic paradise, certainly not, I think, a feasible project, but certainly not an electorally feasible project. And therefore, it's not a sane project for me, from my point of view, to start to deal with the, when the real important thing is to defeat, um, well, I can't really find any other adjective of uh, a form of neo-fascism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At one stage, I don't know if it was a review of your book. I think you actually say this in the book as well that you know you're worried that the U.S. might not be a functioning democracy in the in the uh, near future. And my my initial reaction to that was I, I didn't agree with it. And 
I think part of the reason, well, part of it was was emotional. I have, I suppose, I have to admit that, which is uh, not not a great way to react to those things. But the other thing was, um, when I look at our local democracies, our local elections, and we've got a boatload of them, they're re- really well run and well debated, and a large a, a part of them are, you know, like my son was involved in a local election up in Oregon, and. The Democrat won by a little bit, but the Republicans controlled the county seat and they all agreed that they were going to work together and no one argued about the outcome and they debated issues. And, you know, that's a city of 100,000 people. And I think that happens all across the country. So I do think there's there's room for the sort of piecemeal um, experimentation that you recommend to be tried at the local level and to, you know, to then be replicated um in, in bigger, you know, bigger forums. So maybe that's being idealistic, but I think that's possible. I wrote this to be shocking, but first of all, America is a federal country, which is a tremendous asset, though it makes it very difficult to, but designed to be very difficult to make changes we already discussed. So that means at the local levels, you can do things very successfully. Um, you have to remember that though the resources at local levels are limited, so there are lots of problems they can't really resolve at that level. So that's, that is a problem. But in the end, the federal government does matter, and the institutions of the federal government matter. Perhaps they're too powerful, but they are powerful. And if they are in the control of really malevolent forces, they can make a big difference. So if the Department of Justice were headed by somebody with the, will, with the backing of the president who was willing to uh, abuse that position to go after powerful uh, opponents, to go after newspaper publishers for trumped-up reasons, to use the inner revenue to take tax cases against people, if the courts were not all run by honorable people. Well, it seems to me you have a few judges who are rather problematic. Uh, Some of them may even be on the Supreme Court. Uh, It will be very difficult to do this. But if you're determined enough, these offices can be abused very, very, very profoundly. And again, I'm not making a barren, but this is how Victor Orban has achieved what he's achieved uh, in his limited country. But I don't think you should uh, understate it. And also, there are a lot of states which are headed, which have legislatures, which are prepared to pass simply unbelievable things. I, I'll be honest, I've followed in American politics and upside those. I'm really an economic specialist, but for throughout my life, this is nearly 60 years. And what's been happening in some of the abortion legislation in Texas, for example, the use of bounty hunters, the attempt to pursue people across line, state lines. I mean, this is this is horrendous. And it sort of made me realize that if you control the instruments of power in American states or the, even more the federal government, you can do a lot more than you can imagine. It is, of course, worth remembering that one of your greatest presidents, uh, perhaps your greatest, Abraham Lincoln, uh, temporarily ended habeas corpus. Now, we do that was in a war, but did you declare a state of national emergency? And if you get Congress to agree you, there is a state of national emergency, pretty terrible things can happen. So all I would say is I may be alarmist, and probably am, but I think it's better to be alarmist than complacent because by the time you realize you were wrong to be complacent, it's too late. So that comes back to the starting point of my family in the interwar years. I promise you that in even in 1925 in Germany, which admittedly lost a terrible war and had no history of democracy, nobody imagined that what had been for a long time the most educated, most cultural society in Europe. Not the, it's unbelievable. That was the fact. The world's greatest universities, the world's greatest scientists were German, German Jews and Germans. And everybody knew this, the idea that there would be a Hitler and that that would follow. Eight years later, with all that men, was 
maybe something people couldn't believe it. Um, so I would encourage people not to be complacent about these things. Once historical processes start working really badly, it's too late. You have to act. And the to come back to the big point, the stop the steal, quote unquote, and all the lies that went with it, and the lie and the punishment of the Republicans like Liz Cheney simply pointed out that he'd lost, which is pretty obvious because he had a very basic democratic process. This is absolutely terrifying stuff. So I really would advise people very, very firmly against assuming that worse can't happen. There are a lot of very malevolent people out there who are trying, in my view, to subvert the republic. Yeah, and I, you know, I think in the end, that's. I'm, I'm glad you, you, you know, you, you said that, and I think that's <clears throat> that's really the message that people should take from your book. And um, I, I know you've you've got to go, so I think that's a good place to kind of wrap it up today. But I would say that you know, for people, um, you know, thinking about reading the book, that there there is a there really is a lot of detail that you put forward for ways we can improve things. And um, lot, some of them are small, smaller things, but they're, but they're doable. And so it's a book that, as you say, argues against complacency, uh, but then follows up with, um, Hey, there's, there's things we can do to, you know, avoid the past uh, being repeated. So uh, I appreciate you writing the book and I appreciate you taking the time and to share some of your thoughts with us today. And, um, wish you all the best. It was uh, an enormous pleasure. One of my suggestions, get rid of primaries. <laughs> well, if it was up to me, I, I would I would do that. But uh, um, thanks again and um, all the best. Thank you very much, Martin and Kevin, for a politically charged and at sometimes controversial to some conversation, but nevertheless an important conversation at a time where societies are changing around the world and not necessarily in a more democratic way. At the heart of Martin's argument is his belief that democratic capitalism remains far and away the best system for human flourishing. But something has gone seriously awry. The growth of prosperity has slowed and the division of its fruits between the hyper-successful few and the rest has become more unequal. Now, Martin may come across as an alarmist, but he does argue that this is still better than being complacent. So even if we don't share all of his concerns today, I think it's fair to highlight dangers to democracy in general, and especially if it comes with suggestions of how we can improve it, which, unfortunately, Kevin was not able to get to due to the limited time we had with Martin today. Now that's it for today's conversation. Please make sure and go and follow Martin's and Kevin's work, as well as getting a copy of their books, because as you can tell from today's conversation, some of these ideas and topics are not necessarily being discussed enough on mainstream media. From Kevin and me, thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you on the next episode. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.